Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm so excited to bring you a very special guest, Dr. David Daniels. Welcome, Dr. Daniels. Thank you. It's exciting to be on Jew 3. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to uh that we were able to get you on. I, I heard about you from an article that a friend sent me on the African roots of the Reformation. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never uh Never heard um, the way you articulated um, your thoughts about Luther and the Reformation and the African roots. And I was like, we have to get you on the podcast. So I'm glad you graciously accepted our invitation. For those who don't know who you are, can you just give a little bit of background? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. David Daniels. I am the Henry Winters Luce Professor of World Christianity at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago. Uh, my area is church history, and I've been... Um, teaching at McCormick for 30 years. Awesome, awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you on um, the podcast with us again, uh, as I previously stated. And you are, you know, a good friend of uh, the podcast, Dr. Charlie Date. So uh, he was telling me how, how amazing you were. So I'm glad to finally connect with you. Well, he's doing an exciting job, not only in ministry, but also in scholarship. Awesome. So we're going to get to this article. What was the motivation behind that? Well, before I start there, you wrote it on the Reformation. Um, for those who aren't familiar with what happened during the Reformation, can you just kind of give a general overview? Sure. Um, well, the, the, the op-ed piece um, is entitled Honor the Reformation's African Roots. And it's 600 words, um, and it has literally gone around the world. Um, matter of fact, it is under a couple of other titles now um, and various websites. Um, the Reformation is the beginning of the Protestant movement in particular um, during the 16th century. Um, it is a, unfortunately a schism, uh, a breakaway of churches, um, particularly within Germany, um, Scandinavian countries, Switzerland, France, England, um, Romania, um, Hungary, 
And these churches no longer wanted to be under the Church of Rome, under the Roman Catholic Church, but they thought that um, there was a need to recover um, the New Testament gospel, the early church message, the apostolic message. And one of the key uh, doctrines was the justification by faith. Um, and that uh, there was also a group of, of things that were the basis of it. Um, one should focus on scripture alone, uh, grace alone, um, faith alone, um, for the glory of God alone. And, and these sort of solas, these onlys, um, spurred this Protestant movement that had many leaders. Uh, Martin Luther is, is among the most famous, but also um, uh, Zwingli um, within the Swiss uh, places. Um, there are Mennonites uh, who lead. Uh, Menno Simon is a leader. And there's even women who are leader. Um, recently, I heard about Caritas Perkheimer as one of the leaders um, that was sparking an interest, even though she remained Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good that you said it was a schism because when we think about Reformation, uh, what actually happened, it should be known as the schism, not actual Reformation because they left. Uh, my church history uh, professor used to always point that out. So I'm glad she, you noted that. Um, can, can I also say though, that um, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli's, um, their original concern was to reform the church. Um, they weren't seeking originally to break away from the church. Um, that was an unfortunate consequence. But there's also reform currents within the Catholic church um, that leads to the Jesuits, um, leads to a whole emphasis on theological education for the priests, um, leads to uh, other reforms um, that are there. So really, there are multiple reformations. One is Catholic, one is Protestant. Um, that, that's during the 16th century in Europe. <laughs> that's, that's very helpful. And so um, what inspired you to write this article um, in regards to honoring the African roots of, of the Reformation? Well, so far, there's been a number of studies that have focused on um, what I call the fascination of Europeans with Ethiopia. And it goes back to at least um, the 13th century, some say 14th century, I believe others say, but, but it's, 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 it's in this 1200s 1200, or 1300s um, era. And in that era, they were fascinated with uh, Christianity in Ethiopia because Ethiopia was on the other side of the um, Muslim divide. Um, so to the north of the Muslim countries um, was Europe, to the south of the Muslim countries um, was this empire um, that was an Ethiopian empire that was known as being Christian. And so there was legends about this empire, uh, a very pious uh, emperor uh, who was called Prester John, a uh, large army, otherwise how could you keep the Muslims from conquering you, and a lot of gold. And so um, there's this, this quest to try to reach these Ethiopians so that they can be able to have access to the gold, to meet this pious king, and to find out about this great church. Well, there's studies that talk about um, Catholic, again, my word, fascination with Ethiopia all the way um, through the beginning of the 16th century. And so I wonder, is Martin Luther also caught up in that fascination or is he somehow outside of it? And that's when I began to do the research um, to note that he, he was uh, maybe as fascinated as other uh, leaders at the time. So th there's a, a person who's known for being key in the Renaissance, um, Erasmus of Rotterdam. He also has an interest in Ethiopian Christianity. Thomas More, a Catholic leader in England, also had an interest um, in Ethiopia. And Clement, uh, Pope Clement VII, also had an interest. So there's a number of people in the 16th century that have an interest in Ethiopia and Ethiopian Christianity, and Martin Luther 
just happens to be one of them. Mm -hmm. And what was, how did his um, fascination play out in his, his ideas in his uh, 95 thesis? Okay, so, so now you, you get to um, my argument, which is just beginning to enter into a scholarly debate. And so maybe if you interview me three years later, I'll say that on my five major, on my four major points, um, I've won one and lost two, or won one and lost three. So, so that's the scholarly debate by now. But, but this, is my, this is my suggestion. This is my hunch. This is what I'm arguing for. So if I can, let me lift up four quotes that um, capture what I'm saying. Okay. So um, the first quote says, um, most of the time, when this is Martin Luther uh, writing, um, most of the time, when mention is made of the nations that are to be converted to Christ, the Ethiopians are singled out for mention. Second, for the Ethiopians denote those who have the ardent faith. Third, the people of the Ethiopians are said to be the church of the Gentiles. Fourth, and thus Ethiopian denotes the church of the Gentiles. Five, but the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia. And he says this um, prior to the Reformation, but he also says this again uh, in, the, in the 1530s. So what does it mean for a German a monk who now is a leader in this emerging uh, movement to break away from the Protestant church, I'm sorry, from the Catholic church, that prior to the Reformation and then during the Reformation, he says the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia. Not only how many European theologians say that today. How many African-American preachers even say the church is symbolized and called by Ethiopia? Mm -hmm. so, so there's something here. And my, my suspicion is that because he understands, um, and this is, we, we now realize that the Ethiopian, let me backtrack. Historians say that the, the church in Ethiopia arrives around the fourth century. But Ethiopians thought, and some of the early church um, historians thought, as well as Martin Luther, that the Ethiopian church started in the first century. That uh, in chapter eight of, of the book of Acts, um, there's a story about an Ethiopian captain. We often call him the Ethiopian eunuch, but Martin Luther calls him Ethiopian captain. That the Ethiopian captain, when he got converted, he and others went to Ethiopia, returned to Ethiopia, and converted the kingdom of Ethiopia um, there in the time of the New Testament. So therefore, Martin Luther thought that the first kingdom in the world to convert to Christianity was Ethiopia. So even before um, Britain or Germany or Sweden even heard of Christianity, Christianity was already the, the state religion in Ethiopia. And then because Ethiopia is also within the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, they were known as people of faith, um, religious people that were there. And so therefore, when he says, but the church is symbolized and called by the name Ethiopia, is because Ethiopia is the kingdom that first converts to Christianity. Ethiopia is a, a place that has history of people who were faithful to God. Ethiopia is a place that, that he thought retained the Christian faith in ways that the Roman Catholic Church had not retained it by the time you get to the 16th century. So therefore, Ethiopia, he thought, um, had the Bible in the vernacular, meaning in the language of the people. So it's not in Latin or some religious language that people don't understand. Um, we now know it really wasn't in the vernacular, but Luther thought it was in the vernacular. He said that priests could marry within the church in Ethiopia. 
Um, he also thought that they were preaching the gospel because um, he thought they held on to it. They were the, the church that goes all the way back to the apostles and that they held on to the faith in ways that the Roman Catholic Church had not. So he saw himself in a way, um, both understanding the church in Ethiopia as reflecting the church um, within the New Testament. And so, so it serves then as a forerunner in a way, but it also serves as a model, an exemplar of what he thought the church should be. Um, now, in a few minutes, I'll tell you where the caveats are. Mm -hmm. Oh, you could, you could give us the caveats. Okay, so, so if I could also share with you a letter that um, uh, has been translated that he writes um, concerning, um, um, in 1534, he meets a um, cleric of the Ethiopian church who's a deacon, which is sort of the first order of ordination, but he's not a, a been fully ordained uh, as a priest. And so the letter reads this way. This is um, dated in, in July of 1534. There has been with us in Germany, the Reverend Michael, the, the, de the Ethiopian, a deacon, conversing privately with him concerning Christian doctrine. We have heard that he properly agrees with the symbol which the Western church holds and that he does not think differently about the Trinity than what the Western church thinks. Therefore, we commend him to good people as much as we surely can. For although the Eastern Church has several dissimilar ceremonies, he judges that the dissimilarity does not nullify the unity of the church and does not mitigate against the faith. Since the kingdom of Christ is the spiritual righteousness of the heart, the fear of God and confidence through Christ. We also think this opinion is right. We have also learned from him that the right which we observe in the use of the administration of the Lord's Supper and the Mass agrees with the Eastern Church. We wish, moreover, that all peoples would acknowledge and glorify Christ and would submit to him, Christ, with true confidence in his mercy and with love for one's neighbor. For this reason, we ask that good people would demonstrate Christian love also to this visitor. And so this is an endorsement letter, um, recognizing that there are differences in some ceremonies between the church in Ethiopia and um, the Protestant churches in Germany that are being led by Luther. But Michael the deacon says, as, as he's known, um, these, these the similarities are minor. Um, they do not undermine the unity of the church. Um, what we hold in common is what's important. And Martin Luther says, you're right, my brother. Um, I want to believe, I believe what my Ethiopian brother is saying, and now I agree. And uh, Martin Luther had like 16 articles of faith and Michael the deacon said he agreed with all of them, even the ones that Martin Luther disagreed with this, with this group associated with Zwingli, because Zwingli had a difference in understanding communion. The way that Michael the deacon argued, he and Luther agreed on communion. They needed to be of both kinds, meaning bread and wine, and how one interpret what happens in the communion. So some scholars, one of them by the name of George Postfeg, a Hungarian scholar uh, who's now deceased, he says that if one reads this carefully, Martin Luther was willing to enter into full communion, meaning recognizing the church as fully embodying um, the gospel with the, with the Ethiopian church when he was not willing to be in full communion with the church associated with Zwingli because the difference in communion and for the, another group that's called the Bohemian Brethren, um, which we sometimes call the Hussites because they sometimes allow Roman Catholic priests to ordain uh, their clergy. So Luther refused to be in full communion with, these, with this um, Hungarian, with, with this Hussite group 
or with this with Zwingli within Switzerland, but he was willing to be in full communion with this Ethiopian church. And he clearly realizes it's a church of black people. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, I, I, I'm blown away by that uh, information because I never would have connected Luther <laughs> with, the, with the Ethiopian church. What other things would you think is important to highlight when, when having this discussion? Well, here, here's some ramifications. So the first ramification for people who are interested in world Christianity is that the Reformation then, if I'm correct in my argument of both the role of Ethiopian Christianity and Luther's thought, is not merely a product of Western civilization in Europe. They cannot um, uh, coordinate off and say, we produce this all by ourselves. No, there is an Ethiopian element that could even be seen as one of the ways of justifying historically what Luther was arguing through his exegesis, his interpretation of scripture, biblically. So that's number one. And that's a major game changer because the Reformation is often only seen as an all-white, all-European affair that's produced by Western civilization. But if there's a forerunner of it in Africa, um, even though Africa as a continent is recognized, it's not necessarily called Africa at this time, but if it's in Africa, and Ethiopia in particular, um, that changes the way we understand the Reformation, and if this is correct, we can no longer, we should no longer write, teach, and talk about the Reformation by only talking about Europeans. We have to introduce the Ethiopians um, into the conversation. Second, is that this meeting with Michael the Deacon, which I don't think can be contested. It's there um, within the literature. Um, strangely enough, um, if one only depends on the English translations of Luther's works, it's not there. They haven't translated that letter yet. They have <laughs> letters before that date and they have letters after that date. But that, date is, but that letter is conspicuously missing. Um, so so for, for people who only rely on English, they don't even know it's there. They didn't even know what happened. Um, now, the, the, so, so this meeting that happens is very, very key because not only is, is this um, a casual meeting of, of no consequence, but Luther had a chance with his conversation with Michael the Deacon to test out what he thought about Christianity in Ethiopia. And to be able to say, my understanding of Ethiopia is not merely a figment of my imagination, but I have a clergy person who's confirming what I thought. Wow. That's a wow. powerful confirmation um, of what he's saying. Next is that the, um, the, the church in Ethiopia is an Orthodox church. And consequently then, um, there's questions about the relationship between Protestants and the Orthodox churches. Most scholars see that um, Orthodox relationships with, with the Lutherans, at least, is not until around 1560. Well, this pushes the date up by 26 years. And instead of it being a Russian Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox or a person uh, uh, from, the, from Turkey, who he meets? He meets an African first, an Ethiopian first, to represent the Orthodox Church. That shifts everything around, and what does that mean as theory? Um, now, dealing with, with Luther um, theology and, and, and stories of Luther's theology, this could be a new conversation piece, because what does one do with, I, I've counted about 85 times that Luther mentions Ethiopia um, within the writings that have been translated in English, hmm. meaning that there's more, including three more, which have not been translated, and there's possibly even more than that, which has not been translated into English letters. 
Well, if, if this is important, then Luther theologians, uh, Lutheran theologians who want to focus on Luther need to then unpack what does this mean? And then lastly, going back to world Christianity, now there's a way of globalizing the narrative about the Reformation. The Reformation is not merely um, an event that is, is produced by Europe alone, but it has this external fluence. And how do we talk about it? How do we create a narrative that has that there's, a, there's a, at least an intellectual exchange, even though it's in Luther's mind, um, between Christianity in Ethiopia and um, Christianity within Germany? And um, what story do we tell? Um, what effect does it have? How does it turn the narrative around? And how do we talk about the beginning of Protestantism that again, possibly has an African root? Hmm. That's amazing. And I think that's so important that we, we see it that way because, you know, one of the reasons, one of the things we talk about here and one of the pushbacks we get, especially from black millennials is Christianity being the white man's religion. And if you constantly point to the Reformation and Luther and Zwingli, Calvin, you kind of don't show that Africans are, are a part of the narrative. And what your scholarship is doing is showing that it's a global, um, global uh, conversation and not just a, a, a European conversation, which I think is so, so important and so vital. I should also add one of the problems we have, which we could help all generations, all around the world, including millennials, is that we, we, we misunderstand Europe of the 16th century. Europe of the 16th century by some college scholars had between 100 to 200,000 Africans. Hmm. Most of them were in Portugal, some were in Spain, some were in, in Italy, what becomes Italy, and some were in England. But there was also some Ethiopian expatriate communities in Rome, in Venice, some say even in Florence, uh, in Cyprus, in Jerusalem. And so we, we, we get this impression that um, Europe of the 16th century is a uh, all white gated community. Hmm. And it is not. It is a community with Africans floating around. And all the Africans there are not slaves. These Ethiopians are not slaves. There's some um, uh, one of the first Protestant, one of the first uh, Afro-Portuguese Roman Catholic priests to convert um, to Protestantism was a person by the name of uh, Vicente Lusitano, who was a high-ranking priest who interacted with people in the Vatican. Um, and so he's not some backwater priest. And he's the first person to convert to Protestantism among that I found, um, who's Afro-Portuguese, but he's a Roman Catholic priest. He's educated. And there are, are Africans now, clearly we're dealing with the talented 10th, um, but there are Africans who are uh, poets. There's others um, who are professors um, within schools, um, within Spain and Portugal. Um, there's a seminary in Portugal, among this Roman Catholics, um, seminary in Portugal that's training both Asians and Africans along with European, Europeans for missionary work um, within Asia and Africa. Um, there are Africans um, within, within England. Um, one scholar says that by 1600, there's a thousand Africans in England. I'm sorry, there's, um, yeah, a thousand, I believe, Africans in England. Uh, sorry, in London. Um, they're, 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 they're marrying within churches. Their children are being baptized within those churches. Funerals are being held within those churches. 
And so, so one of the things we have to help people realize is that the reason why Shakespeare writes about Othello is not because he sees Othello in Africa. He talks about Othello because he can see Othello walking down the street in London. Mm. And so we have to help millennials to know that um, Europe is not all white in uh, 1500s, but there are at least 100 to 200,000 Africans that live in Europe. Now, when you get to Germany, when you get to, 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 to Sweden, um, you might only find one or two Africans maybe in the whole country. So they're closer to what the impression is. But, but there's people like this Michael the Deacon who it looks like um, is, is traveling around Europe sightseeing, just like people do in the 21st century, because he's curious. Whether he was going to visit Luther specifically, I'm not sure. There's one, one argument is that he was. Another argument is that, it's uns that, that we're unclear. Um, but, but, but for Luther to run into an African 1534 um, is not sort of a, uh, an exception to the rule on one hand for Europeans in general. Because if you lived in Lisbon, if you lived in Rome, if you lived in London, you could run into Africans every day. Hmm. Wow. I think that's very helpful because I, I never, I've never known that. <laughs> So you definitely enlightened me today because when I'm thinking of Europe, I'm thinking of all white. And then if there were Africans there, they were slaves. But um, now, now there that, were African slaves. There were Africans who were slaves in Portugal, um, but all Africans were not slaves. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's helpful because that changes the narrative of what you think about um, in the era and them accepting Christianity under oppression versus accepting it freely in some in some spaces here's here's where we probably have to to rewrite the narrative so one as a number of scholars have noted and Gerard Wilmore um did this in his book um I think it's called black religion um black radicalism um his first edition um he had Christianity started within North America during slavery but then he realized that's historically accurate so by the time he gets to, I believe, his third edition, he talks about Christianity within North Africa and Ethiopia in the early centuries. And so we need to tell that part of the story, that um, Africans were part of the um, New Testament church from the very beginning. They're, they're, they're not, the, the Swedes come late, the British come late, the Germans come late, the Russians come late, but the Africans don't. Mm -hmm. The second thing we need to know that by the time you get to the end of the 1400s, that, even, that, that a year or so before Christopher, Lum, Christopher Columbus stumbles uh, upon um, the Americas, Christianity enters into um, central, West Central Africa and the Kingdom of Congo. And the, and the King of Congo uh, embraces Christianity on his own. There no, there's no military, um, there's no Portuguese colonialism, uh, he's interested in this faith of these new people and he embraces it on his own. And not only does he embrace it on his own, but it begins uh, a multi-generational history of Christianity within that region that goes all the way up to the 1700s. And one of the things his son does, King Afonso, is that he wants Congolese priests and a Congolese bishop. So they're Roman Catholic, but he ends up convincing the Pope to um, uh, write an exception to the, the minimum age. I can't remember if the minimum age is 30, um, but his son is younger than that. 
And his son is not only trained to be a priest, but his son is consecrated a bishop by 1520. Um, they open up schools in the Congo. Um, they uh, um, uh, have, have opened up churches and chapels. This is all in the 1500s. So this is before Plymouth Rock, Jamestown, um, and the founding of what becomes um, United States. Over 100 years before, they're already doing that. So, so we have to let the millennials get a sense of the accurate part of the story, broaden it beyond um, just focusing on Europe, and realize that some of these Christians then that are, are traveling um, with, within Europe at this time are Congolese Christians whose families, by the time you get to 1517, have already been Christian for over a generation. And then just to go beyond what, what, what our topic is today, that among the enslaved Africans that reached the Americas, there are a group of them um, that are Muslim, maybe 10%. But there's another group of them that are Christian coming from Angola and the Congo um, that could be 5 to 10%. And they will show up practicing the faith, going from places like Brazil and Ecuador to um, the Caribbean, to Virginia, and to New York, all before uh, the 1700s. Wow. Wow. That's, that's very helpful uh, because we've been talking through um, during podcasts, uh, the African church fathers, but some, some questions that we've come across uh, and rebuttals were, what about Western Africa? No slaves that came over from the transatlantic slave trade were Christians. And you just oh, shared no, that. That's, no, they were Christian. Um, they, they, there's, there's an account. I mean, there's they, surviving accounts um, of them setting up churches, of them wanting their children to be baptized. Um, and one of the big debates for the, the Dutch, for instance, in New York in 1540s, um, they're recognizing the, bapti the baptism of these uh, Congolese and Angolans. And um, they're, they're allowing their children to be baptized because their parents were already baptized. And they're allowing some of them to be married in the churches. And some of the um, Angolan Congolese serve as godparents. None of those things are possible if you're not Christian. Mm -hmm. So no, we, we, have, we, have, we, have to, we have to reframe the narrative, not by a new interpretation, but by including more of the facts. Mm -hmm. that's, that's so, so helpful. What resources would you, would you uh, recommend for those who want to study more about um, what you shared about Luther, um, the Ethiopian church, and then what you just shared about uh, the Congo as well? Sure. Um, on, on the Congo, um, there's a, a, a chapter that I wrote that, that talks about the Congolese Christianity um, having influence on the new world. Um, so you can find that under my name. Uh, and it's, it's published in Germany, but the books are available in some libraries in the U.S. Um, there's another piece that I also wrote that's called Will the Reformation, Will African Christians um, Be a Subject Within Reformation Studies? And that's published in a volume edited by a scholar by the name of, of Kenneth Sawyer and, um, and another scholar by the name of Peter Vetanana Gomi. And um, that's, serve, I think it's Servants of Nuns, Subject, service of nuns, subjects of all, um, but, but, but that, that book is available through the Lutheran University Press. Um, on Michael the Deacon, um, there's an excerpt, a small piece within a, a three-volume work by Martin Brech um, that's entitled Martin Luther, The Preservation of the Church. And in his third volume, on page 59, he has a brief discussion on, the, he calls him Ethiopian a cleric. He doesn't give his name. His name is there. And then there's... Um, uh, some articles by a scholar, by, or at least an article by a scholar by the name of George Polsfey, 
Um, there's things that are available there. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Daniels. And it, it, uh, one interesting fact about you that I think is, is so cool is that you're actually uh, a Kojic bishop as well. Yes, I'm a bishop in the Church of God in Christ, even though <laughs> I, I teach at a Presbyterian seminary. I, I, I will say that, that since I went sort of fast on those references, um, if you don't mind, there's um, a currently on the University of Chicago uh, website, they have a um, journal called Sightings. Uh, S-I-G-H-T-I-N-G-S. And I have um, a, a, a essay that's up on, on that website. Um, it begins something like Martin Luther and Ethiopian Christianity, colon, historical traces, I believe is the title. But in there, at the end of that article, I have a list of these references. Um, so if one wasn't able to figure out what I was saying orally, one can go and look at that visually and those references are listed there. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been great. Um, I really, really appreciate it. You have helped tremendously with some of the questions we've been um, trying to answer here for people, especially when it comes to uh, the, uh, the Congo. I had no idea. So I'm so, so grateful for that. And the article you wrote, I think, was amazing and helpful. So we will understand uh, the Reformation outside of just uh, the the famous reformers, but knowing that it was more that more um, people and and thought that went into it, so I, I'm very appreciative. Well, great. Well, thank you, Lisa. Really enjoyed talking with you, and I'm excited about I'm spreading this information. And again, I'm a scholar, so there's some things that I think will be um, incontestable. But a couple of years later, people might say I'm overstating something, but that's the fun of scholarship. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.